0: Welcome to the AFP Report. This is your host, John Friend. Today is Friday, March 17th, 2023. This is the 36th edition of the AFP Report, a podcast series where I will be interviewing reporters and contributors to American Free Press, America's last real newspaper, as well as other special guests. Please consider subscribing to American Free Press if you are not already. Subscription details can be found at AmericanFreePress.net. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Barrett, a leading voice in the alternative media and a regular contributor to the newspaper. All right, Dr. Kevin Barrett, welcome back to the program, sir. How are you today? I'm well.
1: It's good to be back with you, John.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's been too long. Um, You've been a guest on this program at least two or three times now, so uh, it's, it's always good catching up with you. You are, of course, a regular contributor to American Free Press, and we just finalized issue 11 and 12 of the newspaper Um, America's last real newspaper, I should mention. It is being sent off to the printer as we speak, and it will be mailed out to all our subscribers beginning next Monday, I believe. Um, If you are not a subscriber to the newspaper, now is your time to become one. Visit AmericanFreePress.net and purchase your subscription today and support one of the last truly independent populist print newspapers in America. Now, Dr. Barrett, we had a number of important articles published in this edition, as we always do, including a piece you wrote addressing the conspiracy of silence between the leading neocons and neoliberals in America and their joint participation in maintaining this plutocracy that is basically dominating our country, while also running cover for the biggest crimes committed by the deep state. And this article appears on page 4 of the newspaper, and it is titled, Neocons and Neolibs, a Conspiracy of Silence. Right, left, unite to cover up de-state crimes and maintain plutocracy. And if you don't mind, I'd just i like to just start off by reading like the first four paragraphs. Um, and you say here, It has often been remarked that the United States is being torn apart by an acrimonious dispute between left and right. Democrats and Republicans are restrict, recipro, recipro, reciprocally reciprocally jeez I cannot pronounce that word reciprocally reciprocally thank you <laughs> um, uncivil in the halls of Congress while in the streets groups like Antifa and the proud boys regularly have at each other more and more establishment commentators speak seriously about possibilities of secession and/or civil war but at the higher levels of policymaking and information management, there is a remarkable overlap convergence between ostensibly opposing sides. Neoliberals, those intellectual heirs of John Locke and John Stuart Mill, and neoconservatives, the cult followers of Leo Strauss and Carl Schmitt, would seem to be would seem to represent diametrically opposing ideologies. Yet they regularly work together. One might even say conspire. To advance the interests of the power elite that runs the Western Bankster empire fostering the illusion of meaningful differences between the establishment left and establishment right is a key feature of their modus operandi very, very well said very, very excellent way to start off this piece. Um, so, do you want to go ahead and, uh, and and comment on there? Sorry for fumbling through some of those words. <laughs> Jeez.
1: <laughs> no, only one. That's uh, that's a hard one. But yeah. Yeah, I just uh, cannot pronounce that <laughs>
0: word. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> it's a
1: it's a it's a, really the words problem more than yours. It's it's a word that was never designed to be pronounced.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, that I think that's true. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, this this article was partly inspired actually by John Cobb, who is the world's leading liberal Protestant theologian, at least as far as I know, and. I recently visited him. Uh, We'll talk about that at the end of the show. uh, When I traveled out to uh, to Los Angeles for the memorial for Dr. David Ray Griffin, and uh, Dr. Cobb and I talked about a bunch of things, including American Free Press. He's a subscriber and he he loves it. And so he actually we did a little write up together about why he reads it. And he he thinks one of the greatest things about American Free Press is that it doesn't fall for the left right. Uh, nonsense, you know this this kind of false dichotomy that's used to divide and conquer the American public, and that there's a lot of actually seeing through that in the pages of American Free Press, unlike just about everywhere else. So I think that the you know, if you take this to its sort of it's a philosophical investigation of why these liberals and conservatives, left right, you know, red blue, whatever. Uh, are, are supposedly different, and you look at what, what they actually do and how they function sort of in the political ecosystem, and you see that they're actually symbiotic. That's They kind of feed off of each other and create this false dichotomy while essentially both uh, working together to prop up this incredibly corrupt plutocracy. And it's specifically, I think, uh, after 9-11, you know, a lot of people to the liberal and left side of things were more quick to join the truth movement because they saw that Bush and Cheney were utterly corrupt, and that's partly because of their overall prejudice against uh, conservatives, but also they saw that the neoconservatives in particular were really a nasty bunch of just total reptiles, that their political philosophy was basically an apology for political psychopathy, that is, you they act politically the way a psychopath acts to the people around him. Mm-hmm. And of course, that leads us straight to the the designing and carrying out of 9-11 as a brainwashing operation to uh, essentially trigger these wars of choice or wars for Israel or whatever. And so the neocons have this philosophy of big lies, mass murder, any crimes are excusable. And indeed, they believe that there's no such thing as morality, goodness or God in the world so that the honest and truthful philosopher is the person who faces that and realizes that the only way to operate in the world is to be a psychopath, that is, to try to look good on the outside while actually being ruthlessly uh, self-interested and completely amoral and unethical on the inside. That's a heck of a philosophy, but Leo Strauss taught that to his students, and uh, the rest is history. So it's easy to blame the neocons for 9-11 and a lot of other things, But why did their Democrat liberal opponents not call them on it? They blew up Trade Center 7 in broad daylight. I mean, it wasn't really very subtle. 9-11 was such an obvious uh, false flag, inside job, coup d'etat, that it really raised the question of why didn't the political opposition of the people who did this rise up against it? And for a while... Uh that really flummoxed me, I guess. Uh, I couldn't understand why you know, leftists like Noam Chomsky, for example, would essentially be covering this up and why very few Democrats would be going there. And then when they did, uh, like Paul Wellstone, for example, uh, he goes down in a plane crash, killing his wife and daughter and his entire campaign staff. So, uh, and then why doesn't Wellstone's friend, his friends in Congress, like uh, Russ Feingold, the Wisconsin senator, was doing some good things then, why don't they stand up and, 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 you know, why would they let their friends get killed uh, to cover up 9-11? Why isn't there a political opposition against these neocons? It turns out that the symbiosis between the neocons and the neoliberals, I think, goes really deep. And that ultimately, things have become so corrupt in this country that the reigning neoliberal philosophy that prizes, individual freedom and human rights and so on, has really become totally empty and that power has devolved to these gangster, psychopathic neocons. And what passes for the neoliberals are people who mouth these empty platitudes about freedom and democracy and resisting Russian aggression and Chinese uh, oppression of the Uyghurs and this and that and the other, and they don't believe any of it, really. And ultimately, they are just blowing smoke and creating a smoke screen, allowing the psychopathic gangster neocons to get away with their crimes. And and as I pointed out in the article, you know, you scratch a neoliberal and you find a psychopathic gangster neocon underneath. Like Joe Biden, for example, has obviously gangster ethics. You know, he and he's the big guy. And you know, Hunter goes around shaking down people in Ukraine and elsewhere uh, for him. I'm sure he's been involved in all sorts of dirty business that we'll never learn about, uh, as well as some that maybe we will. But Uh, So ultimately, I think the real root of the problem, which I didn't quite say straight out in the article, is that in the United States we've really lost uh, that uh, connection with our national political reason for being. That is that constitutional, uh, call it liberalism if you will, because liberalism is just a philosophy that's based on freedom as the highest value. And so the vision of the founding fathers was a liberal vision basically and it was of course tempered with traditional conservative religious values and all of that's now gone nobody really believes any of this stuff anymore at least not at the highest levels and so that's why we end up having you know having the gangsters running everything and then the people whose job is to just blow propaganda smoke to keep everybody from seeing the truth don't they don't really believe it either
0: yeah yeah that's very very well said and And Basically, one of the main points of your article is how neocons and neoliberals are essentially two sides of the same coin, and how both of them fail to address these outrageous state crimes against democracy, which is a concept uh, that's outlined and and sort of articulated by Professor Lance DeHaven-Smith from Florida State University. Have you interviewed him before? I want to say that I'm pretty sure that you have, right? Yes, I have. And, you know, unfortunately,
1: yeah. I think he passed away uh, not oh, too long wow. ago, uh, as, as I recall. But, yeah, I did okay, interview Okay, I him. didn't
0: realize that. Yeah, I remember yeah. coming across his work years ago, and he was, you know, obviously like sort of a mainstream – well, I, maybe not mainstream is the word, but, I mean, he was a legitimate professor at Florida State University and wrote about a lot of very controversial topics, including these state crimes against democracy. Can you maybe just sort of explain that concept? Because this, to me, has always uh, – Gone to the heart of, of my activism, my journalism, my you know just my pursuit of truth, is that there, there are obvious examples of the state committing outrageous crimes against the people. Um, you know the media is complicit in this. The, these these big lies that sort of shape our world are never addressed by anybody in a position of authority, whether they're neoconservative or neoliberal or progressive or libertarian or whatever or any sort of dissident. It's like these big State crimes against democracy just go unaddressed and the official narrative is essentially taken at face value. So first off, can you address like just the concept of state crimes against democracy? Because I think it's a very important um, thing to understand and, and sort of articulate you know, when, when we're trying to understand how power works in America
1: yeah, absolutely. Well, let me quickly make a correction. I guess Lance Haven Smith is still alive and well. Uh, so I um must have misremembered something or be li- you know I'm living in one of those alternate realities. <laughs> so yeah, he his his book uh, on uh, conspiracy theory in America is the one that set out this notion of state crimes against democracy. And I, you know, that's one way of thinking about it. and you know, use the acronym scads, of course, to refer to that and he's talking about the Kennedy assassinations, plural, since it's obvious that the killing of Robert F. Kennedy in 1968 was a carryover from the killing of John F. Kennedy in 1963. These kinds of acts, and of course he included 9-11, are uh, essentially, uh, there's there's a whole industry really designed to covering them up, and the most basic kind of obvious Uh, realities about them is is entirely suppressed from mainstream discourse. So, yeah, Lance and Smith really uh, took a very diametrically opposed approach to that whole question of so-called conspiracy theories that has fostered a multi-billion dollar industry, I would imagine, uh, in, in public records and open sources, probably maybe in the hundreds of millions, I don't know. But there's in the universities, there are all of these professors who are out there talking about conspiracy theories and mostly... They're talking about how terrible the conspiracy theories are and just taking for granted that none of them could possibly be true. Or if maybe a couple of them are, uh, it doesn't really matter because that's it's not important. Whereas Lance David Smith points out, we have a huge problem with these state crimes against democracy. And the uh, question of, of how they get covered up, uh, as I wrote about in the article, uh, I think in, involves the way that the, uh, the, the ostensible opposition which normally should be profiting from exposing these crimes in the same way that when we have a kind of a normal garden-variety crime, there are people whose role is to try to expose it and get justice, whether it's the police, the cops, the courts, private detectives, and indeed the media. Uh, So those kinds of institutions end up failing in the case of these state crimes against democracy. And... There there should be people who would profit by exposing them, whether it would be the Democrats, for example, profiting by exposing the crimes of 9-11, which were presided over by the Republicans, or the Democrats profiting by exposing the COVID bio-attack on China and Iran, which happened in the Trump administration. Trump himself may not have known about it, but it would have been people like Pompeo that did that in fall 2019, and then more recently, of course, the destruction of the pipeline, the Nord Stream attack by Biden, the worst act of international economic terrorism and eco-terrorism in human history. Republicans should be all over this. But for whatever reason, uh, that doesn't happen, and I think, as I wrote, the, the reason involves the fact that, first of all, these neoliberals don't really believe in honesty, truth, transparency, uh, justice, uh, free flow of information, all these things they profess to believe in, they really don't, ultimately. And the few that maybe really do are just useful idiots. They, uh, they're they uh, apparently so poorly informed that they don't have the slightest idea about how the way the world really works. And and uh, then, uh, so finally, the bo- both sides end up profiting from the system that allows these crimes to occur. And, of course, the neocons think that's fine, that this is just the way the world works the really nasty uh, evil strongest people always viciously uh, oppress and exploit the weak and so the smart wise man just joins forces with the strong and grabs everything he can whereas the uh, the other side the, the neolibs end up you know they have a place at the table as long as they don't go there on these kinds of issues and so they too can sort of personally profit and be uh, pulling in good salaries for babbling about public policy and you know current events and history and so on, they get jobs in the academy or the media, and as, as soon as they talk about these uh, these red pill issues, boom, you know that's that's the end of their careers.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you you would have direct experience and knowledge of that <laughs> that phenomenon <laughs> yeah. happening, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess I was one of those quote unquote neoliberals who were maybe in a sense too stupid to see how the world works (laughs) and actually believes that the role of the academy is to seek out the truth use logic and evidence to debate and discover the truth so that's how i viewed what i was doing in the academy at the time and uh, i had always noticed that people in the academy maybe don't go after the truth quite as hard as they should and could but i still sort of thought that that was the bottom line and in this case with 9/11 being so huge and so obvious that maybe there was a chance that academics and even media people might do their jobs, and I guess that was kind of naive, but it was worth a shot.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Well, that's that's certainly I, I wasn't in you know in, in the academy or anything, but that's that's been my mindset. And yeah, it was a little bit naive looking back on it, but. At the same time, I think it's the only principled and and honest stance to take, especially when you wake up to the obvious reality that we've been lied to about so many events, including 9-11 and many, 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 many other events throughout history. Um, But yeah, no, that's what has always bothered me is that even – like back like before I was really sort of awake to 9-11, I was more or less in the more like anti-war progressive type camp. I watch Democracy Now regularly, i you know, I read Noam Chomsky, I was a big fan of Glenn Greenwald back in the day when he had, gosh, I think he, it was before he even wrote for Salon, I think he just had a, like a, a blogger account on Google, like a free blogger account on Google, back then anyways, um, and you know, his career is, has, you know, he's, he's had a very, very successful career in the, in the alternative independent media. But these types would never address these big state crimes against democracy, whether it was 9-11 or the JFK assassination or, or many, many other events throughout history, um, and they just refused to address the big lies shaping our world. And I'm curious, could you maybe address that? I mean, what explains that? I mean, even these sort of like – you would think independent media outlets like A, like a Democracy Now! or like a, you know, some of the like, – maybe like the anti-war type libertarian crowd. Um, Even they won't go there and and refuse to confront these big lies.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of puzzling, isn't it? I had an email correspondence with Noam Chomsky, which finally broke off acrimoniously. And I just urge people to read it so you don't have to take my word for it. But Chomsky seemed to me to demonstrate transparently bad faith, making ludicrous statements like, well, if you guys prove that they blew up the World Trade Center – that would only prove that it was Bin Laden that did it.
0: <laughs> you
1: know? Wow. And, yeah. Chomsky is supposed to be a you know genius, and so he even if he were sort of a person of average intelligence and just a tiny modicum of common sense, he wouldn't say something like that. So I assume that he must have been saying that in bad faith. And so after these repeated examples of bad faith in his email correspondence with me, I said, well, the heck with it. You know, he had earlier. Uh, said that we you know, we have to keep, I, I don't want this to be made public. And I said, yeah, that's fine. But at that point, when he uh, acted in bad faith, I said, forget it. I'm going to publish this and let people draw their own conclusions about it. So I did. And then I ended up doing a presentation at the Left Forum in New York several years ago called Why Chomsky is Wrong About 9-11, in which I uh, went over the history of completely ridiculous, bizarre, uh, transparently bad faith writings and statements that chomsky has made about 9-11 and the fact that he more than anyone else acted as a kind of a a pied piper uh leading the whole left away from the truth about 9-11 and therefore away from any chance of making the world better by exposing it Mm
0: -hmm. and and there are, there are many such cases like that yeah Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good. Yeah, that's, I I completely agree with you. I had plenty of email correspondence with all sorts of people in the alternative media back then that I was just reaching out to in an attempt to at least get them to address the the controversy surrounding 9-11. And yeah, very, very few, almost none, in fact, wanted to go down that route. And I think it's it's almost like there, there's like this psychological, emotional barrier to it. Obviously, I think that plays a role. I think just the financial incentive. I mean, you know, the, you, you know, you're risking your entire career, your entire reputation, you know, your ability to use services like PayPal, for example, or you know, be on Facebook and have sort of like a, a mainstream presence are very, very much curtailed if, if you start addressing some of these big, you know, state crimes against democracy. So. Yeah,
1: that's true, uh, and and some people kind of admit that whether you know overtly or kind of tacitly like Amy Goodman for example uh it had a really interesting response when i called her out on, on building 7 during a talk she gave at the University of Wisconsin Madison she was there she saw the demolition of building 7 and yet never covered it or the implications i asked her about that and and her response was uh, to quip um, i did not blow up building 7 <laughs> And then she went on and said, but I, I do know that we need a real investigation of 9-11, and then stopped right there and wouldn't say anything else. So after the talk, I approached her when she was signing books, and she said, you know, Kevin, I'm really glad that you're doing this issue and not me. And, and <laughs> so, so what did that mean? Well, yeah, it's pretty uh,
0: revealing right there. Yeah,
1: another friend of mine uh, later qu- had a similar encounter with her in which she said, uh, it, the guy said, yeah, you should be covering Building 7 and 9-11. And she said, are you trying to get me killed?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So well, that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, no, yeah. that, that, that certainly doesn't surprise me. Um, but c- kind of getting back to the theme of your article, I mean, I, and, and I, I've, I've thought this for a long time now, but like the whole two party system, the Democrats versus the Republicans, the left the left versus the right, or, you know, in, 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 the topic you wrote about the neoconservatives versus the neoliberals, they're all like these more or less theatrical performances by completely spineless, and bought off puppets who are doing the bidding of their financial backers and those organizations and individuals wielding authentic, real power in America. And that, of course, includes the Israel lobby, organized activist groups like the ADL who are literally going around dictating what can and can't be said on the Internet and you know, pressuring law enforcement to go after dissidents that simply disagree with officially sanctioned narratives of history or contemporary events, or who just notice the disproportionate power and influence that the organized Jewish community wields in America. So this is who really wields power in America. And these, you know, these puppet politicians are simply just fronting for them. And um, really that's the crux of American politics and and politics, frankly, around the world, at least in, in much of the Western world, as far as I can tell.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And there is some question about whether Chomsky might perhaps be covering for Israel. He has a long history of borderline covering for Israel. And he has said publicly that the best time of his life was the year or whatever it was they spent on a kibbutz. So he does have some kind of uh, deep emotional identification with this genocidal Zionist entity occupying Palestine. And you have to wonder whether his long history of making this completely obviously false and uh, just transparently inauthentic and bad faith claim that Israel is just serving U.S. imperial interests in the region, and and he's denied that the Israeli lobby has power in the United States. He thinks it's the United States that has power over Israel and uses Israel to maintain the U.S. empire in the region. Reality, of course, is quite the opposite. The Zionist tail wags the American dog. The Zionists have repeatedly uh, attacked the United States and staged coups d'etat, including the murder of the Kennedys and indeed 9-11, in order to keep control of the United States in general and especially its uh, its Mideast policy. And Chomsky is intelligent enough that he probably knows this, although it's true that sometimes it's hard to get somebody to see something if their salary or their sense of self-esteem depends on their not seeing it. But I would assume that he probably does see it, which means that his obvious bad faith in dealing with issues like the JFK assassination in 9-11 stem from the fact that ultimately he is on the side of the perpetrators of those crimes, namely the Zionists, and that it's part of his job to cover this up. I mean, that's kind of the maximally uncharitable interpretation of what he does and says, but it's also unfortunately one of the more plausible ones.
0: Yes, I 100% agree with you. <laughs> um, well, I want to move on and talk about a couple other articles that appeared in this current edition of American Free Press. And one of them was written by Phil Giraldi, who's another regular and, and longtime contributor to the newspaper. He was actually um, a guest on a pre- j- just the previous edition of the AFP Report. And he had another outstanding article addressing the seemingly never-ending piles of cash and armaments – the collective West, led of course by the United States, continues to funnel to the Zelensky regime in Ukraine, which is easily one of the most corrupt and plutocratic governments in the world. I mean, you can even go look at what is it, Amnesty International's Corruption Index in Ukraine is right up there. Um, certainly one of the most corrupt governments you know in Europe, but you know even in throughout the entire world, and it always has been. It's been a, a very corrupt government for a very long time. Um, But Giraldi talks about two recent sort of surprise visits to Ukraine by top Biden administration officials, including Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, and also Attorney General Merrick Garland. And both of these individuals, just like every Biden administration official, pledged their unwavering loyalty to Ukraine's quote-unquote fight for democracy. And, you know, of course, made a bunch of other very empty and, and baseless and ridiculous platitudes. So um, I know you've been following the situation in Ukraine pretty closely. And, and your analysis of, of Russia and Putin, I think, is, is, is spot on. So I'm just curious, did you get a chance to read Phil's article and what were your comments on it?
1: Yeah, that's a great article. Uh, it's just amazing the kinds of things that Janet Yellen and Mira Garland, say about this there it's just such such pablum you know such uh such kindergarten level nonsense uh, who,
0: i, I want to know who who is this appealing to and who is actually buying this r- empty ridiculous rhetoric
1: boy that's that's a good question i i really don't know i mean if if uh you know if if these people, uh, Garland and Yellen, really felt that way if they were such uh, you know, such emotional, uh, non cerebral uh, cheerleaders for Ukraine, they were so infatuated with Zelensky and this Ukrainian cause. Well, I think they should go over to the front lines, put them on the front lines and let them uh, experience some of that art- artillery uh, stuff. I mean, those art- art- artillery battles that are slaughtering huge numbers of people on those front lines are paid for by American taxpayers, thanks to the work of people like Merrick Garland and and Yellen. And so since they're the ones who are responsible for the, these horrors, these World War I-style artillery battle horrors, I think they should be on the front lines. In fact, I think every single American politician that has voted for or in any way supported this war on Russia through Ukraine should be extraordinarily renditioned and taken to those front lines and given a a machine gun or some very cursory training in uh, how to operate artillery uh, and and just drop them there and let them fight because if they're that excited about it, they should have the the right and the duty to fight for it. And then the rest of us who are not interested in propping up this possibly the world's most corrupt government ever Uh, in this totally unjust fight that was provoked by the American neocons in their threatening encroachment to the Russian border and basically threatening to end up destroying Russia, that these people who have pushed this whole project, they need to be be, uh, dumped down there in the war zone and left to fend for themselves.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. That's exactly what needs to happen. And I think you'd find if, if, if something like that were to be implemented You'd find that support for this war would quickly evaporate amongst these people because they're uh, they're all about sending your sons and daughters to go fight their wars. You know that simply advance the interests of this globalist, um, quote unquote, rules based international order dominated by the United States and these corrupt plutocrats and special interests that control the United States federal government. Um, one thing that, that was interesting, Phil um, talked about in, in an article that uh, Janet Yellen published in the New York Times and has some good quotes from that op ed that was sort of like highlighting her trip to Ukraine and talking about the, you know, the, the, the more, basically she's making, and, and this is very typical of all these politicians, they make this like moral argument that it's in, you know, it's a moral duty of America in the wider Western world to continue to support Ukraine to give them more money I mean I don't even know how much money it's been at this point I mean it's certainly in the in the billions um, not to yeah, mention well, no, all the military hundred 100 billion plus yeah I mean it like the numbers are just like absolutely astonishing meanwhile our country's crumbling we have no money for basic infrastructure and you know for the American worker the American family so the, the, the situation is just totally outrageous And one thing that Merrick Garland was over there talking about was uh, investigating, quote-unquote, Russian war crimes. I don't know if you caught that bit of the article, but he actually appointed a guy named Eli Rosenbaum. And by the way, I do find it funny that all of the key individuals in this story, Zelensky, Garland,
1: Janet Yellen,
0: Eli Rosenbaum, yeah, they're all of the same ethnic religious background and this guy eli rosenbaum has made a career basically out of persecuting alleged nazi war criminals and fighting anti-semitism and um, he's been appointed to gather evidence to indict russian leaders and military members on war crimes charges and you gotta love the hypocrisy here i mean this is coming from an american government that has a long track record of committing some of the most egregious and outrageous war crimes in recent history. Yet we have the gall and the nerve. And I guess in, in, in this case, it's really the chutzpah. I mean, you know, these are all Jews basically acting on behalf of the United States government. We have the hutzpah. This guy has the chutzpah to lecture and accuse the Russians about their alleged war crimes, almost all of which that I've inve- – the ones that I've investigated have turned out to be either total hoaxes or outright distortions and exaggerations, and in many cases, like, literal projections of what the Ukrainians and their, like, Ukrainian uh, militias have actually done, right? I mean, it's like a total inversion of reality, essentially. So you just got to love the hypocrisy here. It's it's just totally outrageous.
1: Yeah, well, that's the Zionist modus operandi is to accuse the other side of what you're doing yourself, Right, uh, the Palestinians want to push us into the sea. <laughs> okay, who crossed the oceans to go push who into the sea? You know, and it's the same thing in in Ukraine. Yeah, Merrick Garland as the war tri- war crimes guy. Uh, that's pretty funny. I mean, Merrick Garland is the guy who covered up the Oklahoma City bombing which was pretty interesting. And, and, you know, you you mentioned that that Zayas angle with him, you know, with Rosenbaum, of course, being brought in to come up with a new Holocaust mythology uh, targeting Russia and this sort of thing. And that Oklahoma City bombing, which ended up being blamed on the militia movement, and this was used, of course, to crack down on all sorts of patriotic uh, Americans who were starting to get together and figure out how things really work in this country. Well, it was originally probably planned to trigger a U.S. attack on Iraq. And it, who who did that? Well, the usual suspects, right? Uh, obviously, the same forces that did 9-11 also did Oklahoma City. And there's all sorts of evidence that they were trying to set up Iraq and that at some point a decision was made to uh, apparently the Clinton administration was not quite under the thumb of the hardline extremist Zionists that did the bombing or at least spearheaded it. And so the Clinton administration ended up uh, insisting on blaming it on McVeigh and the militia movement rather than the Iraqis, because Clinton didn't wasn't ready to go all all out into Iraq. So then they uh, went back to the drawing board, and you know, they discovered in Oklahoma City that blowing up a building uh, with <coughs> claiming a truck bomb had been used to you know in, in this explosion that was just vastly bigger than anything a truck bomb could possibly. It was obvious that that had been bombed from the inside. And there's all, all sorts of evidence, including the original uh, newscast footage, proving that. Uh, so they said, oh, well, if we can blame a, a truck bomb for what happened to the federal building in Oklahoma City, we could probably blame jet fuel for the total demolition of the entire World Trade Center, including three towers. Uh, so the same people did both of those things. Merrick Garland covered up OKC and one suspects, that he's part of this extremist Zionist cabal that's behind 9 11 and all sorts of other very nasty things. And that his, uh, you know, working with, with his people, uh, to go after the Russians with his war, war crimes propaganda and stuff is pretty much, uh, par for the course.
0: Right. Yeah. They're, they're talking about establishing a Nuremberg style tribunal. At some point in the future once this war is over with or or you know if they can get their hands on any of these russian leaders or military members and of course anybody that's looked into the the sham nuremberg trials will recognize them as just complete show trials lacking any sort of genuine justice or authentic investigation of the facts and 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 things of this nature so just pretty outrageous yeah, tor- tortured confessions. Oh, right. absolutely. just like 9 11,
1: uh, right? A lot of the Holocaust narrative is largely based on tortured confessions. Uh, you know, with 9 11, it was KSM Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who was waterboarded hundreds of times in a month or something like that. Basically, confessed to you know, every unsolved crime in history, starting with a Lindbergh baby kidnapping on through JFK. <laughs> he confessed to crimes committed after he'd already been in custody, uh, you know, but yet. His tortured testimony secondhand uh, and never with not from any notes and not from any recordings, just secondhand alleged reports of what he had said under torture, where it became the prime evidence used to support the 9-11 commission report. If you turn to the footnotes, you keep getting these reports of, you know, KSM, 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 which means uh, what some alleged CIA person said to some commission staffer about what, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed allegedly said while he was being tortured into confessing to every crime in history. So that's the evidence that undergirds the 9-11 Commission report. And (laughs) uh, likewise, with Nuremberg, uh, there was also the issue of the tortured confessions and uh, including confessions of some ridiculous things. So yeah, it's 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 really an outrage, and our our national mythology, you know, based on the idea that we were are always on the side of the angels, and you know the the angels beat the the demonized uh, devil Hitler in World War II, and we've been ever on the side of the angels ever since, as we march around the world slaughtering 60 million plus people since World War II in our CIA and military interventions. Uh, you know that, that that Holocaust narrative is a major pillar holding up. The big tent of, of this whole discourse about how we are always the good guys and we're always justified in running around the world mass murdering millions of people, and in this yeah, case, absolutely. starting a war with Russia.
0: Yeah, and I should point out that the official Holocaust narrative is as ridiculous and absurd and fanciful as the official 9 11 conspiracy theory. Um, but getting now, that. That back- may be true, but it's, it's not as obviously true. <laughs> okay, true. It takes a little bit of digging to to get there to right, yes, to, yes, to overcome yes. all the emotional propaganda from Hollywood and our educational system and 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 whatnot. Um, getting back to your article, um, and just sort of like a final point about the whole Ukraine conflict. I think it's pretty clear that the U.S. government and media continue to and probably will continue to double down on their on their Ukraine rhetoric and these policies, this endless piles of cash being sent over there, these Weapon systems, um, you know, being dumped into Ukraine, because I think that the people that control our country, they they know deep down in their hearts that this is really the make-or-break moment for the U.S. empire in its continued hegemony in international geopolitics. They know the time, their time is about up, and they are govern, governing a just totally decaying, dying degenerating empire and Russia and China are on the ascendancy and are increasingly playing much more productive and helpful roles and and more fair and honest roles in international affairs and I think that that scares the daylights out of them and you know they, they basically see their their control of you know international geopolitics and, and their maintenance of this uh, U.S. hegemony around the world as as crumbling and if they lose this conflict I think it will
1: yeah, I think that's true. It's uh, And it's not really that unusual to have a declining empire going to preemptive war to try to prop up its, its empire as the world changes. The big underlying change here is the economic change in which the non-Western world in particular has grown much, much faster than the Western world. So the U.S. Uh, emerged from World War II, dominating the global economy, and then it sort of built up its its uh, client states in Western Europe and Japan, which became the uh, the, the main you know, theater of running the world. And now uh, the non-Western world has caught up with China and, and also places like India and Brazil and South Africa, the the BRICS nations, Turkey, and and many other countries around the world, uh, narrowing the gap. And indeed, China, by some measures, already surpassed the U.S. economy. So these uh, power uh, institutions, the the rules that were drawn up after World War II are no longer really applied, and this is often the trigger for wars that you know reset the global pow- power relations. And the U.S. empire right now is run by fanatical uh, neocon lunatics who seem like they would rather risk destroying the world than work out some kind of peaceful transition to a more multipolar world in which the U.S. would probably still have the first position, but it wouldn't be the kind of unilateral position to just make up the rules as it goes along that it has now. And that's, of course, what the rules-based international order means. It means the U.S. could just make up the rules as it goes along uh, and you know, go to wage aggressive wars against anybody, anytime, commit all other sorts of crimes, and then loot the world by way of the disguised imperial tribute of the petrodollar system. All of these kinds of crimes that the U.S. is committing uh, are probably going out uh, within the next few decades And, of course, the empire doesn't like that because it means ending its current business model, which is always very painful for all the people who are profiting from the current business model. And it also means being humble, and that's very difficult for these arrogant uh, neocon maniacs.
0: Yes, very, very well said. Well, this all ties in nicely to um, one of the articles that I wrote in this issue of American Free Press – that basically summarized and highlighted a recently released policy paper published by china's ministry of foreign affairs this paper is titled u s hegemony and its perils and it thoroughly exposes the totally destructive and sinister nature of this rules-based international order Dominated and controlled by the U.S. government for for far far too long. You can find the article right on the um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs website. I'll have a link to it when I post this podcast program. It's really not very long. You could sit down and read it in like maybe ten minutes at the most. It, so it's 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 very short and concise and very very powerful. Um, And I'm just going to – let me attempt to do this without stumbling over my words. Um, I just want to read the first two paragraphs of my article, and then I'll get your take on it. Um, This is from page – sorry, from page 26 of this current issue of American Free Press, and I write here. As tensions continue to rise between the U.S. and China, fueled and instigated by a dishonest mass media complex and ruthless politicians and bureaucrats, hell-bent on maintaining U.S. hegemony in the world – the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs has published a devastating critique of U.S. foreign policy and its geopolitical ambitions. Titled U.S. Hegemony and Its Perils, the powerful and insightful critique has largely gone unnoticed and unreported in the mass media for obvious reasons. Representing the official views of the Chinese government, the policy paper critiques and condemns the political, military, economic, technological, and cultural hegemony wielded by the U.S. in the aftermath of World War II, a period when the U.S. came to dominate global geopolitics. That hegemony is now being directly challenged by a rising coalition of nations led by an increasingly solidifying alliance between China and Russia, who view U.S. hegemony as having disastrous consequences for peace and prosperity in the world and the maintenance and flourishing of sovereign nations and cultures. And um, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Barry, you have to turn to to the Russians and the Chinese and, and I guess the Iranians for accurate analysis of US foreign policy, US domestic policy, and things of this nature. And I don't know if you got a chance to read this policy paper, but it is absolutely spot on. And I don't know how anybody in America could read something like this and not agree with the basic You know, contentions being made.
1: Yeah, I thought it was great to see a truth bomb uh, being hurled out of Beijing for once because the Chinese have actually been kind of slow on the uptake in that department with the Iranians with their press TV and their, you know, people like Ahmadinejad going to the UN and talking about the JFK assassination in 9 11. And then, of course, the Russians with RT. And currently, uh, the things Putin has been saying about the uh, decadence and depravity of U.S. culture, among other things, are, are spot on. But China has been kind of slow. Like, of course, Iran has Press TV, which is an excellent network, highly recommended. I'm on it every now and then. And, and Russia has RT, which is not quite as good as Press TV, in my view, but still uh, a pretty decent source of information. But the Chinese don't really have anything comparable to that and they've also been very slow to critique U.S. behavior with sufficient uh, harshness, shall we say? They've really kind of uh, been, you know, very geared towards trying to kind of uh, paper over problems and uh, and tone things down and and not really upset the Americans too much. And they err on that do, side. So, so do, here, here they've they've changed. They've changed their operation. That's that's great. I hope they do that Oh, more I,
0: absolutely. And I think you know they're they're sort of timid and meek um, acquiescence to, to U.S. hegemony is. They they recognize that the U.S. is not simply interested in, in maintaining this hegemony. They are actively trying to suppress China, to suppress Russia. They're you know in this policy paper that you know they're they're basically you know openly calling out. How the U.S. is, you know, waging wars across the world, you know, unprovoked wars, you know, is is committing war crimes and using all sorts of, um, you know, very destructive weapon systems. They're interfering in other countries' sovereign affairs, and they have a long history of doing that, engaging in that sort of behavior, um, which has sort of culminated in our modern era with these color revolutions. That in certain cases, the U.S. State Department and the U.S. government will openly admit to participating in and supporting. And so that was a big part of the paper. Um, th- th- well, there was a number of. I, th- the paper is worth reading for anybody that hasn't hasn't seen it or, or, or read it. It's it's certainly worth worth sitting down and, and taking the time to read. It's just a, a devastating analysis and critique of, of of the type of policies the U.S. government has pursued for for you know for far too long.
1: That's right. And, and on top of all of this extreme immorality and recklessness. We have the geostrategic stupidity of the Americans trying to take on the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians all at once. You know, An intelligent American policy here, You know, imagine one that's mainly geared towards protecting the interests of the U.S., its empire, its privileged classes, whatever. I'm not even saying we need to imagine a world in which our own government was actually trying to do the best thing for everybody. Just imagine a world in which our government was trying to do what relatively uh, realistic yet somewhat uh, corrupt and materialistic and worldly governments typically do, which is protect their own version of their so-called national interests. If we just had a government that could do that sensibly, and the Chinese certainly do, and even the Russians do, the Iranians do, uh, if we just had a government that was that sensible, it would know that it's complete folly to... Be So ham fisted that you drive these three large, important countries, Russia, China and Iran together into a de facto alliance against us. Why would you do that? I mean, why not uh, sort of play one off against the other and, you know, refrain from these threatening, you know, from threatening the uh, actual, you know, the, the integrity of Russia. We're threatening to destroy Russia. That's why Russia has reacted the way it has. Uh, we're being extremely provocative with China, of course, in terms of Taiwan, and then, of course, we've been waging a war of terror against Iran ever since the revolution in 1979. So this extreme hostility towards these three large, powerful, important countries, one of which has the world's biggest uh, nuclear strategic weapons uh, complex, that's the Russians, one which has the world's biggest Economy and manufacturing economy in particular, which is China, and of course manufacturing is what decides the outcome of wars. We saw that with World War II, and then uh, one of which Iran is is large, powerful, has been forced by us to develop self-reliance, its own factories, its own satellites, its own drones, its own weapons that are very good. That you know we've really shot ourselves in the foot, even from just a kind of a raw, real politic perspective. By being so reckless as to create this alliance, which is really formidable in terms of population, economics, manufacturing capacity, resources and so on, they look, I mean, that side could easily prevail over the U.S. in a world war. And it looks like we're almost setting ourselves up for that. Indeed, there are these so-called conspiracy theories that, you know, somebody at the top of, you know, the eye and the pyramid wants to destroy the United States, because why else would we be pursuing these supremely stupid policies.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, in this policy paper, the the Chinese basically conclude by insisting that countries should respect each other and treat each other as equals and that powerful nations should behave in a manner befitting their status and take the lead in pursuing a new model of state-to-state relations featuring dialogue and partnership not confrontation or alliance. Wow, that, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. And it goes on to say that, um, you know, the Chinese oppose all forms of, um, they oppose all forms of hegemonism and power politics and reject interference in other countries' internal affairs and that the U.S. needs to conduct serious soul searching and critically examine what it has done let go of its arrogance and prejudice, and quit its hegemonic domineering and bullying practices. I could not agree more.
1: <laughs> Likewise. So, you know, let, let's hope that a lot of the folks in the alt-COVID community and other parts of what you might call the you know conservative movement, the alt-right, uh, the friends of liberty, and people who really believe in America's ideals— And a lot of those folks have been led to demonize China. There's a whole propaganda industry targeting that demographic, try to convince them that China is the most communist evil empire in history. And no, they're not really. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party is is really just a bunch of mandarins and their communist ideology. Yeah, it's 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 a bad ideology. I agree with that. But. What has it given risen, rise to? It's created this Mandarin group, very highly competent managerial types who are running the policy of this country, and they've made a lot of pretty decent choices overall. And yeah, it's a surveillance state. There are a lot of things that I wouldn't want America to have, that China has, but we're getting them anyway. And we're losing our freedom here. And, and you know, China has its own history, its own philosophy. It's not really our business whether they decide to... Uh, you know, to, to pursue these kinds of domestic policies that maybe I wouldn't like. Uh, but we have the choice here in the United States not to do that. We have a choice to set up a different kind of society that has more of an emphasis on individual liberty than China ever will. And that's what we should be doing. We, mm-hmm. should, be, we yeah. should try to make America the best America it can be, uh, just as China is trying to be the best China it can be. There's no reason why we have to imagine that just because we have these different political philosophies, that means that we have to be at war or that, that China, because of its philosophy, is inherently evil. Because they're really not. They're actually the main adults in the room on the world stage right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The Chinese and the Russians, for that matter. I mean I I, yeah. I you know look at some of the the statements and in the speeches given by these leaders and I'm like totally impressed. Here's like responsible, sane um, statesmen, you know, talking about cooperation and working, working cooperatively and, and productively to to create a better world. And then you look at, you know, the the spokesmen for the for the United States government, and they're just total warmongering psychopaths. It's it's disgraceful. Um, but anyways, let's go ahead and, and, and wrap up here. I want to just uh, br- briefly. I know you were you, you've been traveling for the past few weeks, or, or geez, maybe even over a month at this point. Uh, but can you kind of just review your recent travels? I know you went to Iran, Los Angeles, and then Morocco. And you mentioned your trip to Los Angeles. Uh, but yeah, if you want to just maybe highlight some of your, your trips and, and what you were up to.
1: Yeah, I, I went to Iran to uh, ostensibly to lecture at the University of Shiraz and other Iranian universities. The problem, though, was that it took a while to get the visas in order for you know, a couple other guys who who were also coming. And so they had to juggle the schedule And ultimately, I was only able to spend five days in Iran, and that didn't leave enough time for me to go with the other invited speakers down to Shiraz to lecture. So I just ended up uh, doing the preliminary stuff with them in Tehran, such as visiting the Aerospace Museum and seeing all these American drones that the Iranians have proudly captured and then reverse engineered. And now they've become a drone manufacturing powerhouse. Uh, so I uh, got, to, got to hang around with uh, my false flag weekly news colleague uh, Mike uh, Springman, um, and uh, as 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 well as uh, co- a couple of other of my uh, my favorite uh, dissidents, and uh, ha- had to fly back uh, in in a hurry to go to Los Angeles for the memorial for Dr. David Ray Griffin at Claremont College, which is where he taught. And I got to meet the wonderful John Cobb, who's pushing 100 years old now, and is still one of the smartest guys on earth. He's, he's actually an old uh, kind of China expert. He was born there. His parents were Protestant missionaries, and he he founded Process Thought alongside David Ray Griffin. Uh, so David's memorial was was very wonderful. I was very glad I could be there for that, and to, to get to actually meet John Cobb in person uh, it was that was a wonderful trip. And from there. I only got to spend a day or two at home before we were off to Morocco, and I just got back from two and a half weeks in Morocco. So overall, this this has been a month and a half of traveling, and my jet lag has never managed to completely wear off. Each time I'm just about over it, I have to go somewhere else. But,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I can imagine. I can imagine.
1: Yeah, well, Morocco was was great. I'm actually working on moving there. Uh, it's my my wife's home country, and it's it's a it's a wonderful place in many respects. I don't know where to start in terms of talking about the politics and stuff, but I guess just very briefly, I would say that one of the areas where the left and the liberals turned out to be wrong, and there are a lot of those, right? I I followed the same trajectory as you, having previously been kind of on the left liberal side and now not so much. And one of the areas that the left has been wrong is its support for the uh, rebels in the Moroccan Sahara who are really basically working for Algeria to try to break off the Moroccan Sahara, which is part of Morocco and has been for many, many centuries until it, you know, Morocco got colonized and conquered by the French and Spanish. And uh, Morocco has prioritized territorial integrity, meaning its sovereignty over its Sahara regions ever since. And they're, they're right on this issue. And this is an area where, again, the, the left liberal side of the international community has actually been wrong. Uh, In in general, the uh, colonialists and imperialists have wanted to bust up countries into smaller pieces like the Annone Plan in the Middle East. And in this case, they love to break off the Sahara from Morocco so they can get better deals extracting the phosphates and other resources from there. And why should Morocco let that happen? Uh, Same thing with Kurdistan in Iraq. The Iraqi Iraqi people now are not getting a piece of the oil action because Kurdistan has been de facto broken off from Iraq by the U.S. invaders. So it's a similar situation in in Morocco with the Sahara. And uh, that's, of course, been the reason the Moroccan government signed the odious Abraham Accords and recognized Israel and allowed an, an Israeli embassy to open up in Rabat is because that was the only way the Israeli-occupied American government was ever going to recognize Morocco's sovereignty over the Sahara. So playing real politics, the Moroccan government went ahead and did that, even though the entire country of Morocco loathes the Israelis, loathes Zionism, totally sides with the Palestinians, has no use for the Abraham Accords. The whole thing was basically kind of a sham to to get the the Zionist-run U.S., to admit that the Sahara is the Moroccan Sahara. So that's that's my political speech on Morocco for the day.
0: <laughs> interesting. Well, it sounds like some interesting travels for sure. Iran would be a, a fascinating country to visit, I think. Um are the, are they still doing like the freedom of historical inquiry type conferences? Or was uh, that was that more like under Ahmadinejad? I know I know he, when he was when he was the the leader, the president. I'm not sure exactly what his title was. They had, you know, they set up these um, sort of international conferences to address controversial issues like the Holocaust and other topics.
1: Right. Yeah. The the NGO that sponsored some of those, uh, including the ones that I attended from 2013 through 2019, was called New Horizons or New Horizon, singular. And that uh, organization, as I understand it, no longer exists uh, the founder and the main guy, Nader Talabzada, who was a very popular, the most popular talk show host in Iran with a regular TV audience of over 10 million people, was the, the guy behind that effort. And uh, so he passed away last year. Uh, may May God uh, admit him to the highest station of paradise. What a great guy. Uh, and so the new horizon apparently is gone now. And I don't know of any conferences like that that are happening uh, of course, that New Horizon got s- uh, sanctioned by the Zionist-occupied Treasury Department back in 2019. So there were a couple of conferences like 2019, uh, whenever it was, right, pre-COVID, that we Americans couldn't go to because we were told by the FBI that we'd be arrested on the plane back if we tried to go to these conferences. So they'd, they'd come up with some kind of a ridiculous pretext for sanctioning this New Horizon group. But but it no longer exists, and this we were invited to go lecture uh, by the University of Shiraz, I actually got to have conferences with a couple of professors from the University of Tehran, and so whether there are going to be more conferences, uh, like like all those wonderful ones, the I guess the Holocaust conferences were before New Horizon, that was some earlier group that had sponsored those, and, and I have been to conferences, I was at one conference sponsored by a Palestine-related Iranian NGO, so uh, there probably will be those kinds of conferences where they bring people in from all over the world supporting Palestine, um, but as far as that, uh, like the the New Horizon ones, I think are are gone unfortunately because those were really wonderful.
0: Interesting. Wow. Cool. Well, thanks, Dr. Barrett. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Keep up the great work for American Free Press, and I know you also publish your own Substack. And do get some rest. I know you've had a <laughs> a lot a lot of tra- traveling time in the past few weeks, so definitely get caught up on your rest and also. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Okay.
1: Happy St. Patrick's to you too, John.
0: Okay. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye.